Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak through your word as it is read and as it is preached upon. But Lord, no man is fit for this task on their own. And so I ask for the work of your spirit to come upon me now. Uh, Lord, that you would anoint my lips, uh, that you would benefit your people, that you would point us all to Jesus. We might see him in the text. That you might grow us to be people who are worthy of the calling that you have given us. I pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, sort of our general diet here at City Reach Marion. I don't know if you've thought about Bible teaching as a diet, but it is a good way to think about it. So we tend to, as our sort of you know, main diet, uh, we tend to go through books of the Bible through particular sections of Scripture. So what you'll see most of the time is someone get up and they'll read a section of Scripture and then it'll be teach, taught on or preached on, and then the following week, the next portion of scripture within that particular book will be read out, and that'll be taught and preached on afterwards. And from time to time, we have supplements to our diet, which are particular topics that might come up, which are important for us to know about, and might come from different places in the Bible as well. But this is our main diet, and that's what we're getting today. One of the phrases in the text that you heard read out for you this morning is, as you come to him. As you come to him. What does that mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus? You might have thought that you were doing that this morning. You might have just had in your head, you're going to church. But God wants us to come to him. Come to Jesus. It's been said that God doesn't want people to study him, he wants to be known. So in order to do that, we must come to him. So uh, just in your mind this morning as you're thinking about what I'm saying, I don't want you to think that you've just come to church, you're just attending an event on Sunday. I want you to think that you are coming to Jesus. And for some of you that might mean that you're just exploring from the outside your um, on the outside, looking in through the shop window. For some of you, you're already in the building spiritually in your heart, but I want to remind you that we're here to come to Jesus. For some of you, you've been coming to Jesus for a long time and you still need your daily bread. And for some of you, you might be feeling a bit far from this Jesus, this one that you're supposed to come to, and he wants you to draw near this morning. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? Well, firstly, it means that he provides us with a spiritual meal when we come to him, a spiritual meal. Now, to explain this, I want to go into a long-standing debate regarding what is the best mite to put on your toast in the morning. There's three options. There's Vegemite, there's Promite, and there's Mighty Mite. Which one will you choose? I am a Promite person, and I was having a um, debate with people that I went away with recently, and I went and bought Promite, because I know that that is the best uh, mite that you can put on your toast in the morning. But others were not convinced. They said, no, Promite is not good. You must have Vegemite. 
But aha, they had not tasted Promite. They did not know. Whereas I've had both. I've had Promite and Vegemite. Avoided Mighty Might, and we can talk about that later if you'd like to. But they were convinced that no, it looked bad because it has a different texture to Vegemite. Promite is a bit, you know, a bit softer, a bit more syrupy. They said it smells different. Doesn't smell like Vegemite, it smells different. And they were convinced it would taste bad. They said, You've made a poor choice. And I said, Just you wait. Just you wait. You've got to taste it first. And they all looked at each other like, no, no, we wouldn't dare taste this dreaded other mite. But one of them gave it a go and was up. And I watched their face. I watched very closely. And they were like, hmm, hmm. I see what you're saying. It is good. And then the others tasted like, oh, I see what you're saying. It is good. So I've converted people from Vegemite to but they didn't believe me initially. Now, the reason I tell you this is because some people think they know what Christianity is like, what God is like, and they don't think they like the taste. But I want to tell you, you haven't really tried it if you don't like the taste. I want to tell you that if you have not, as our text says, tasted that the Lord is good, you haven't really had him. You haven't really had him unless you've tasted that he is good. So he provides a spiritual meal for us. And it goes into the nutritional benefits of this meal. We see this um, in verse 3. So it talks about growing up. Getting to know God, it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This actually comes uh, from a psalm, a psalm 34, verses 8 to 10. I'm going to read that out in context because it gets us a bit of an idea of the meal that God provides for us to experience him. It's a really strange saying, isn't it? Taste God? What does that mean? But to experience him. You're not just looking from the shop window you're not just reading it in a cookbook. You've got to have a meal. You've got to experience it. You've got to experience him. This is what it says in Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good Thing. What is the, the nutritional benefit of coming to Jesus? It is that your life is filled. That hole in your heart, that search for meaning, that search for purpose, that search for value is found in not just knowing of God, but tasting that he, yes, is indeed good. So God is not just to be thought of. He's not just to be known about. He is to be experienced if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I find this verse 10 from Psalm 34 amazing. Even the strongest of the animal kingdom suffer want and hunger. Young lions. But those who seek the Lord, 
those who taste and see that he is good lack no good thing. Though those people may not have every material thing that they desire, they will be fulfilled spiritually. And for them, that will be enough if you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. So he does provide a spiritual meal and it has particular nutritional benefits to us as we come to him. But then we're instructed, well, how are we to eat? What ought our diet look like? And in verse 2, it says you've got to eat like a newborn baby. You've got to eat like a newborn baby. You've got to experience God like a baby needs its milk. What do we know about newborn babies? They need their milk very regularly. They need it every three or four hours at minimum, sometimes more. When they cry, sometimes they are hungry and you must feed them. When they are filled, they are satisfied, hopefully. For those of us with young children, it does get a bit more complicated with actual babies. But what we know is that the child, the infant, is utterly dependent upon the one who gives it milk. They cannot do this for themselves. And so they must feed regularly. They must depend utterly on the one who gives it to them. And they only grow if they get their milk. What does this mean? What is this metaphor? We must depend on God in the exact same manner. The exact same manner. And it speaks, I think, to our need for satisfaction and our need for spiritual growth. It says in verse 1, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All the bad stuff that comes out of our heart. But the Bible often does this. It says, don't do this, but do this. Why is that? Because you can't be in a state of just having gotten rid of something. You must fill yourself with something else. Otherwise, like a baby, you still got to eat. You still have to eat. You'll eat poorly if you don't eat well. We know that nutritionally, right? If you're satisfied with good food, you won't even need other food. And so in the same way, if you're satisfied by your relationship with God, you will begin to grow and mature. And what does it say? It says, long for the pure spiritual milk. The idea of pure spiritual milk is that you can get impure. The idea of pure spiritual milk and longing for it is you need to know how to feed your soul. You need to know how to grow, and that is through a rich experience with God. And if you don't have that, long for it. If you don't have that now, seek after it, because God has promised that those who seek will find. Those who knock on the door, it will be open to them. To those who ask, it will be given. Because this is not an abstract thing, this idea of Christianity. It is a relationship with God. He is a person who wants us to know him. Sometimes we think, like, we've got to work it all up. No, no, he wants you. He wants you personally to know him better than you do now. He wants you 
using this metaphor to be as, de- as dependent as a little baby is with its mother. He wants you to be like that with him because he loves and cares about you that much. And so what is the outcome of all this? What is the outcome of this spiritual meal? Well, it means that God's people will mature. They will know him and increase in their knowledge of him. Those who taste that the Lord is good will not search for goodness in other places because they won't need it. They'll be satisfied by him and they will increasingly know, though every option is out there and available in the world, you can DIY everything. You can YouTube anything you want and DIY it. You know? But God has better. God has better than DIY spirituality and religion. He offers it to us personally. All this, of course, hangs on, and it says it here, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Sometimes we don't want God, we don't want him really close. Some of us are actually here because we're on the outskirts of Christianity. Or maybe we've been in, but we've drawn away. But we've forgotten, or we've lost sight of, or perhaps we don't even know that he is indeed Good. We think that we can get goodness apart from God. God is optional. I was listening to a talk uh, this week by a guy named Priyana Jenaganthan. He is an Australian guy uh, who lives in Singapore at the moment. He is a public theologian and apologist. That's an interesting job title. I'll explain what that means another time. But he says that for those that think they can get the good life without God, there are three particular responses. And he summarises them this way. He says, truth is indispensable. That is, everyone lives by a certain kind of truth, except you've got to know that it's true. Everyone lives by something they think is right and good, and they put that into practice in their life. But is it actually true? What do you really believe about how things ought to be? Truth Number one is indispensable. Secondly, suffering is unavoidable. You might be living a good life now, but what about later? The mortality rate is 100%. It catches up on everyone eventually. And so we must be able to handle this. We must be able to handle that truth is indispensable. We must be able to handle that suffering is unavoidable. And thirdly, we must be able to handle that happiness is temporary. Happiness. Happiness is temporary. You may feel happy today, you may not feel happy tomorrow. It all really hinges on your circumstances, how you're feeling at the time. But God is different. You see, the goodness that comes from God, Jesus said, I am the truth. And so we find that truth is not an abstract idea or philosophy, even a way of thinking it's a person. We find that our God suffered for us once so that if we have faith in him, we will be with him in a place where suffering will end forever. We can have a relationship which gets us through the hardest and darkest valley, even in the shadow of death, knowing that he will be with us. We have someone 
with whom we receive joy from, and it doesn't depend on the highs and lows of life. But unless you taste and see that the Lord is good, you will not receive this. Unless you experience God when you come to him, you will not have this. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? It means that he gives us a spiritual meal. He wants us to taste him, to experience him personally. Secondly, it means when we come to him that he builds us into a spiritual house. He builds us into a spiritual house. We see this in verses 4 to 8. What are the building materials of this spiritual house? Well, firstly, Jesus is painted as the centrepiece of this spiritual house that is being built. It says, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone. Jesus describes himself as a living stone. This is a spiritual house, so it's a metaphor. But he's saying he's the centre point. He's the one which you've got to frame everything else around. You build your life on him. And it has a particular way to describe him. It says he is precious and chosen. Jesus is precious and chosen. Is Jesus precious to you? How precious is he? It says he's precious and chosen of God and yet rejected by men. Jesus is precious, is more valuable than anything else in this world. He's chosen of God to be the saviour of humanity. He is the son of God, fully man and fully God. And yet he's rejected by men. There's this situation when it comes to Jesus, that we must choose. He's either precious and chosen by God or we reject him. We're not given a middle ground with Jesus. You might take the middle ground, but when you take the middle ground, you actually reject him, the Bible says. Jesus says you're either for me or you're against me. Now, that might seem harsh, but it depends on whom we're talking about. It depends on how precious he really is. If this is Jesus, the Son of God, creator of the universe, then it probably does matter what you think of him. And because he's not an abstract force out there. You know, uh, in the Star Wars movies, the force is sort of an abstract idea that has a good side and an evil side. And you kind of pick your side and one seems better than the other depending on what you're going through at the time. God is not like that. God is personal. And we know that because Jesus is God and became human. He actually wanted to relate to us in a deeper, more profound way, and so he became just like us. And so the explanation here is that we ought to become just like him. It says he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. What is the process of maturing as a Christian? It's becoming like Jesus, like living stones. As you come to him, he makes you more like Jesus. That's what he does. That is the goal of the Christian life. Becoming more like Jesus. 
So that is the, the, those are the building materials, living stones. We become this spiritual house unto the glory of God. Our lives look like Jesus' life more and more as we mature. And then it changes metaphors. Still with a building project, but it turns to the foundation. It turns to what's called the cornerstone. Now, I used to... Um, be a landscaper. And so what you find in City Reach Marion is you get lots of landscaping type metaphors and illustrations. I hope you enjoy that. If you don't, too bad. So a cornerstone, I used to build block walls. A cornerstone is the first block that you lay in a wall. Uh, and for this, uh, in ancient building, they would use large stones for the foundation of any building. But in a wall, you would put the first stone, the cornerstone down, and it becomes what's called your datum point. That is, everything else in that wall is based upon the accuracy of that first foundational stone, the cornerstone. Your angles are all dependent upon this cornerstone. Now, whether it's level or not, the rest of the uh, construction is built upon it. And so everything must return to and look to and be based off this cornerstone. And that is the idea we get with Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's our constant reference point. And the Bible uses uh, the name Jesus and the word synonymously. We are to take the word as Jesus' words. We are to believe that this book is the, the very words of God as if he was speaking. My children asked me this yesterday when we were sitting down and reading the Bible together as a family. They said, so why would we listen to something that was written 2,000 years ago? Great question. Great question. And I said, well, the word is living and active. And they said, what does that mean? I said, it is as true today as it was when these words came out of Jesus' mouth 2,000 years ago. It is as active today as I read it, as I speak it, as it was when Jesus spoke the words out or when the psalmist composed that song. It is just as true. It is just as active. It is just as powerful because it is alive. It is living and active. It is a unique book and so when Jesus is our datum point, his word is our point of reference. So we look at things through a biblical lens. What does this mean? Well, many of us, are, well, in fact, all of us, whether you've got glasses on or not, or contact lenses on or not, we look at life through particular lenses. How do we interpret the information that we have? How do we interpret the relationships that we have? How do we interpret world events? What is, our, what is our reference point? For Christians, it is to be the Bible. Not what your favourite blogger says or your favourite news anchor or social media advocate or parent says, but what the Word of God says. Now, we... Shouldn't truncate this too much. We need to realise that Christians, like wise and thoughtful Christians, help us understand God's word, but they don't have authority over God's word. They always come under it. That's why we pick up one of the Reformation um, principles, which is we always go back to the Bible. Or the Bible alone, sola scriptura. 
We always come back to God's word when we want to have a reference point in life. That is why there is a culture war on at the moment, you know, between the right and the left. But we don't actually need to be a part of the culture war because we're Christians. We believe that God's word has authority over us and we've always believed that before people even knew there was a right and there was a left. You don't have to buy into it. Because Christians will always be on both sides of politics for various reasons. And so we can have great confidence then that if we base ourselves on the cornerstone, we will be built rightly and we will not be put to shame. That's what it says there, doesn't it? It says, whoever believes in him, verse 6, at the end of verse 6, will not be put to shame. One of the great concerns when we talk about um, political left and right or whatever it is, is what will happen, how things will come out in the wash. And some people say with a bit of venom on their lips, just you wait, you'll be on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that before? The wrong side of history? Well, there is actually a judgment day coming because that assumes there's going to be a judgment, of course, at some point. And I agree, yes, there is going to be a judgment. It's mentioned here in verse 12. It says, the day of visitation. Jesus will return, the Bible tells us. There will be a day when we work out not just what side of history are we on, but what side of God are we on? Are we on his or another? That will be the great judgment and you better be on the side of the cornerstone because the people who are on the side of the cornerstone, on the side of Jesus, it says, will not be put to shame. And so don't let your heart be pulled or concerned or really worried about particular political events, though Christians ought to be advocates for justice and mercy. Don't get me wrong on that. But we don't need to be overly consumed by them because we have a sure and steadfast foundation that cannot be broken. How do I know that? Because people stumble over it, the cornerstone, but it never gets broken. People stumble over Jesus all the time. I said this earlier, but the, the issue with um, our modern contemporary culture is that we believe that well, we can sort of be, you know, okay with Jesus or okay with some aspects of Christianity, but not really believe because we're in a DIY culture. Bit of this, bit of that. You know, I, you know, I'm into different types of spirituality. I'll uh, have an optional part of God, but the bits I don't like, I will avoid. I will ignore Reality is, in its most ultimate form, what will come out on the last day, that those that reject Christianity, those that aren't willing to go all in but remain on the fence, actually reject Jesus personally. They find him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They join with the builders who rejected the cornerstone. That's the hard truth, is that when we're not willing to be all in with the one who's all in with us, we actually begin to reject him. And we follow on that trajectory 
for our life. C.S. Lewis uh, explains this really well uh, in one of his most famous books, The Screwtape Letters. It's a bit of a comedy, and it's, you've got to take it as a comedy, about a senior demon called Screwtape who's trying to instruct his younger, uh, less experienced demon nephew, Wormwood, about how to keep humans away from God. And this is, it's a bit of a behind-the-scenes view of what's really going on. This is what it says. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge out the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. C.S. Lewis's um, comedy behind the scenes of the spiritual world is very insightful because it tells us that just like going on a distant journey, but you change your trajectory just a tiny bit, just a little bit, you, you go off course and you don't have Jesus as your cornerstone, you can end up very, very far away at the end of your journey. It says, it describes us as sojourners and exiles in verse 11, or pilgrims is a great word. You do not want to be at the end of this pilgrimage on earth far from your cornerstone, far from the one with whom you will not be shamed on the last day. You do not want to be far from him. And so we must be careful with these matters. We must realise what it means to come to Jesus. We must realise what it means to be part of his spiritual house. So as we come to Jesus, he gives us a spiritual meal. He wants us to experience him, to know him personally, to fall in love with the one whom already loves us and gave his life for us on the cross. He wants to build us into a spiritual house. He wants to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to invest in us. He wants us to become more costly and precious like him. He wants to fill us up with his love. He doesn't want us to divert from the path. He doesn't want us to stumble over him. And thirdly, as we come to him, he helps us to deal with an identity crisis. An identity crisis. Uh, in the past week or two, a young man called Ned Brockman, 23-year-old uh, electrician or sparky from Sydney, ran across Australia. He, he uh, arrived in Sydney uh, in the last week. He ran all the way from the far west coast in Western Australia, about 4,000 kilometres over 46 days, to run to Sydney. That's a lot of running. He did it 
to raise money for those who are homeless in Australia and almost raised, I think, over $2 million now. People asked him in the interviews, well, how did you do it mentally? And he said, it can feel demoralising when you get up at 3.30am and have to run 100 kilometres every day for 45 days. Can you imagine that? But he said you break it down into blocks. You make it into 20 kilometre, 5 kilometre blocks. He's got his whole team of people supporting him, which helps him see those milestones really well. But he said that he's an intrinsically motivated person. I thought, hey, there's something about this guy that's different. He says he's an intrinsically motivated person. He said all those external motivators are great, but they don't get you through the nullabore when you're injured. If your reason to get something done is bigger than your reason to quit, you'll just keep going, says Ned Brockman. So he's saying he doesn't need the applause from other people. There's something inside of him, an intrinsic motivator, that he gets personal satisfaction from running, from doing something, from pushing his body further than usual. He's a very interesting man. The problem, of course, um, with these uh, intrinsic motivations is they're actually just as selfish as the external ones. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. If he was just in it for the applause that he was getting from the media, right? that's, that's obviously selfish. You know, he's just doing it so that other people will look at him and say, good on you. He doesn't really care about those that are homeless. But he's saying he's not, even, he's not doing it for them. He's doing it for something inside. He's doing it for personal satisfaction. So he's still really doing it for himself. He just doesn't need something from someone else to tell him that he's doing a good job. He's happy within himself about that but it is still inherently selfish. But there is another reason to do things, a deeper reason to do things, and it comes from who we are. It comes from our identity. So we're getting deeper now. We're going to the world of motivation. We're talking about what motivates you for living. What motivates you for life? What motivates you when it comes to God? Is it fear of going to hell? Or perhaps the reward of heaven? Is that what motivates you when it comes to God? I've heard these things many times. Or is it that you feel good about yourself when you do good things? You just you stack up a list of good deeds that you've done and you feel like you're a good person. And so that is what motivates you. But God doesn't call us to either of those. God calls us deeper still. We see in our text, he calls us to a new identity. Verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What are these words? These are words of identity. He's saying, be who God has made you to be. And so there is a deeper form of motivation to live, to have purpose, to have value, to have significance in the world, and it is out of who you are. William Blake puts it this way. He says, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Verse 10, it goes into what we behold. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Earlier in verse 9 it says, Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Notice the contrast there. The darkness and the light. Those who were not a people have become a people. Those who had no mercy now have mercy. Why is that pointed out for us? Because we are to behold what God has done. What God has done. That God the Son gave his own life bodily on a cross to pay the debt, the penalty for our sin. He did it to win for himself a people. People who were spiritually in darkness and would continue in that trajectory for all eternity. People who were perpetually not a people. Because there is only one true people, capital P, and it is God's people at the end. The idea of darkness or what's described in the screw tape letters as nothing is that you lose every scrap of identity. The end result of those without God are those that lose every scrap of identity. There's nothing left. You are not a people at the end. But God is saying, Jesus is saying that he has done the work. He has built the bridge that we might come out of darkness and into light. And so the more, let me say this to you, to the degree that we behold him, to the degree that we see that he is excellent, as the text says, we will proclaim the excellencies of him. How much you love God and how much you know that God loves you will then impact how much you share it with other people. So my best advice for you when it comes to evangelism, because sometimes we talk about evangelism, that is Christians telling people who don't know Jesus about him. My best advice to you on that is not a better strategy. It is be satisfied with Jesus in your own life and then you will not be able to stop telling others. In 1970, Simon and Garfunkel uh, performed the song Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water. And verse 1 goes like this. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side, oh, when times get rough and friends can't be found. And the chorus goes like this. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. The Bible tells us that Jesus has become our bridge over troubled water because he laid down his life for us. There is a great river of trouble that separates us from God. And the only way to cross over it is that Jesus would lay himself down for our sins, humble himself, the highest of high to become the lowest of low. And it is only by crossing that particular bridge that we can become God's people, the bridge of Jesus. And when we behold that truth, we become like him. We taste and see that the Lord is good. 
It becomes precious in our sight. It becomes our cornerstone, the one with whom we base our whole life upon and we take his word as our lens to see everything with. So we become what we behold. And lastly, who you think you are determines how you live your life. Who you think you are determines how you think your life. In 1969, you can tell what music I've been listening to recently, Peggy Lee released her hit song, Is That All There Is? Is That All There Is? In the song, it reveals the three significant personal experiences uh, that moved the songwriter. It was a family home that was burned down and a child in their pyjamas having been saved from the home but wondering, is that all there is in their devastation? This same child seeing the greatest show on earth circus but being disappointed that it wasn't actually the greatest show on earth. And as an adult, the love affair that didn't quite work out. In response to these three verses within the song, the chorus goes like this. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. You see, life is hard. Uh, as a modern philosopher put it, life sucks and then we die. That's, really, that's terrible, isn't it? But that's what people say. And it's sort of sometimes... It feels like that as we get further along. But if we are all focused on this material world and our life now giving us satisfaction, then like Peggy Lee's song, we might as well break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. As in, I'm telling you, if this is all we've got to look forward to, there's not much point just just not giving up, is there? But if there's more, but if there's more, if there's something deeper still, if there's something to look forward to, well then life is worth living. If there's something worth it on the last day, when we, even the secular people amongst us, Imagine there's a day when we'll find out who's on the right side of history. We're imagining a day of judgment. You can see how God has put eternity into the hearts of man. We're looking for these things that God has shown us in the Bible. Is life more than this? In verse 11, we are given a particular identity as sojourners and exiles. That is, we are not to cling to this world. We're not to fall in love with the world, Jesus says. If you fall in love with the world, you lose your love for Jesus. If you fall in love with money, you lose your love for Jesus. You can't do both. Jesus puts it this way, fresh water and salt water don't come from the same spring. You can't do both. Sojourners and exiles are people who have not come home yet. Our 
aim, our goal, our place called home is not here. That means we don't live for the things here. We're not living for the approval of other people. We're not living to gain our personal identity through our personal success. We're not living to become a better doctor, a better business owner, a better plumber, a better nurse, a better teacher, to rise the ranks. We're not living so that we might be looked well upon by our family members who we've craved the approval of our whole lives. I was the youngest of four. And so being the youngest, I'm beginning to realise that I crave to be respected by others because I've always been the youngest. And so I am drawn to things that will make me appear respectable. That's my sin nature. That's what comes out of my heart. That, that can drive me to do things. But I tell you, that will end in disappointment because I am Beheld, I am controlled, I'm in slavery to what other people think of me. And yet if I have an identity as a sojourner, as an exile, as a child of God, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, those things don't matter anymore. I'm not a slave. I'm a child of God. How about you? What controls you? What are you living for? Where's home? Where's home? Is home with him? Is home somebody that you've tasted and realised that he's, he's good and it all comes from him and so that's where you want to be? Or is it somewhere else? Because it is only with that attitude, it says, that we can abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's only with that attitude that we can keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles, honourable. It's when we are focused on that final pilgrimage to come to him. You know, a pilgrimage always has a destination. People talk about being perpetual pilgrims, but that's not the idea. You're supposed to end up somewhere. The journey has a destination. It's not just about the journey because if your destination is bad, then you realise the journey was for nothing. You've got to know where you're headed. And I want you to know where to go. And it ought to be with him. I just want to talk briefly as we finish and apply this idea of abstaining and keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honourable. Uh, it, it talks about... This is an interesting phrase in verse 11. It says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is, what you do with your body and how you control your body, that is what we eat, what we drink, what we look at with our eyes, how we gratify our desires, You know, whether we exercise or don't, whether we rest enough or don't, it actually affects our soul. God's word is saying what you do with your body affects your soul. We're not so separate as you might have been told. You might have thought. Our body and soul, God says, are connected to one another and they affect one another. And so, yes, if drinking is not good for you, if you become enslaved to alcohol because you always drink too much or you drink too regularly, 
and it's become unhealthy, then you are to abstain. Or food. If you eat too much, you eat too unhealthy, we're to abstain from those things and look after our bodies. Or from staying up too late. We're to abstain from those things. Or watching too many TV shows or movies or computer games, or whatever it is, all these things, we need to take care of our bodies. Why? Because I can tell you what not to do. I'll give you a very long list of things that I think might be healthy or not healthy for you, and we need to take this seriously, so you need to actually do a self-inventory of where you're at right now. But why are we to look after it? Because we are to be sojourners and exiles. He says, I urge you, beloved People who are beloved by God. He urges them, live like you're not of this world. Don't be controlled by things. I've been reading through uh, Paul's letters in the New Testament recently, and I'm, I've just, it's been highlighted to me over and over again that Paul talks often about how he's learnt to master his body. It doesn't control him, he controls it. So let me ask you this question, who's in control of you? Who's in control of you? Are you living as a sojourner and an exile? This is what Jesus wants to do amongst us ongoingly, but today, actually, right now. Jesus wants to do this for you today. I'm trying to convince you that coming to Jesus will satisfy you personally, that you can live a good life for him with eternity in sight, even if you're suffering, you can, be, you can have joy. I'm trying to convince you today that that's true. That actually your mind can be changed right now on those things and you can live differently as you walk out of here with a different mindset. But you've got to be open to him and you've got to see what sort of God it is. I want to point you back, have you tasted that the Lord is good. Your answer to this is not to fix up your life first, all right? Because I, I know what I'm like, and so I'm guessing what you're like. That straight away thing, I've got, to, I've got to lay off the booze, I've got to stop eating as much, I've got to exercise, you know, you're making the list, right, in your head, all these things I've got to sort out, you know, I've got to stop looking at stuff online, whatever it is, stop watching so much TV, you know, stop gambling, all these different things. No, I'm saying come to him. Because you can't change your heart, but he can. Don't go to the list, go to Jesus. Come to him. Experience him. If he satisfies you, you won't even want it. If he's enough, if the son of God, crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven, his living, breathing word is enough for you, then you will be able to do this. But otherwise, you won't. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you change people as they hear it and respond to it. And so I ask today that you would speak to our hearts, not to get the to-do list sorted out, that may come later, but to come to you. Draw our hearts near to you, Lord God. Fill us with your love, a reminder of what you've done. Lord, help us to take these things very seriously and not to neglect these things. We commit ourselves to you this morning.
and pray them together. In Jesus' name, amen.